What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Good friends. Well, it's Friday, September 15, about 8.30 in the morning on our nation's capital. Time to wrap up the week with this week's Reporters Roundtable. And it's been a week of really big news. But on the other hand, not a lot of surprises. We expected House Republicans to open up an impeachment drive against President Biden. And on the orders of Speaker Kevin McCarthy, they did. Despite McCarthy's move, we expected members of the Freedom Caucus to continue to defy him by refusing to support his budget plans and trying to shut down the government. And they're doing exactly that. And sooner or later, we expected Hunter Biden to actually get charged with a crime. And he was, this week, three counts related to a gun purchase back in 2018. All right, two surprises. Nancy Pelosi announced she's running for another term, and Mitt Romney announced he's not. Oh, <laughs> whoa. That's a lot to deal with, but here today to help us make some sense of it all, Philip Bump, national columnist for the Washington Post, author of the great new book, The Aftermath, and editor of the How to Read This Chart newsletter. Hello, Philip. Welcome back. Hello, sir. Thank you for having me. Good to have you, Catherine Doyle. White House reporter for NBC News, back with us. Hello, Catherine. Welcome. Good morning. And Jason Dick, editor-in-chief of CQ Roll Call, veteran roundtabler. <laughs> Hi, Jason. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, everybody. It appears that the president's family has been offered special treatment by Biden's own administration. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption. That's why today I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. So there it is, the announcement this week by Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Philip, you've been looking at how this uh, impeachment effort uh, stands uh, alongside of other recent impeachment efforts. What did you find out? Yeah, I actually was in process of sort of digging into the history of, of recent attempted presidential impeachments uh, when Kevin McCarthy made his announcement earlier this week. And so, uh, you know, I had in hand the, the start of the impeachment inquiry in the Watergate probe, which followed, you know, the existence of a special counsel in that case, a, a lengthy Senate investigation, obviously outside reporting. I had in hand uh, the Clinton impeachment, which began 1998 with the Star report already having been released. Uh, you know, this 300 page document detailing uh, all in great detail uh, what uh, President Clinton had done. Um, I was obviously very familiar with the 2019 impeachment push, which followed the whistleblower account outside reporting that indicated that Donald Trump had withheld funding from Ukraine um, and other pieces of evidence. Uh, and of course, then the 2021 impeachment, which followed the Capitol riot, which was <laughs> you know, evidentiary on its uh, in its own existence. Uh, and then we had this. Um, and I've been following 
the efforts by the House Oversight Committee in particular over the course of the past several months to try and make a case against Joe Biden. I'm very familiar with the flimsiness of that case. Uh, and it's pretty remarkable to compare it to, particularly, of course, to compare it to something like Watergate. Uh, but even just to compare it to the 2019 impeachment, it is it is a, a real dearth of actual evidence uh, that they have in hand already. Well, the big question, Jason, what are they impeaching Joe Biden for? TBD. <laughs> you know, we uh, as 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 Philip, uh, you know, has has said and also, I mean, great, great work. I mean, I you know, it was it was tough to keep uh, up with just how much, um, you know, was was going on this week. But uh, Philip, your your columns were, were a great guide uh, for a lot of us as we were also reporting on it. Um, but, you know, they I, I think that at this point, this it seemed like a couple of weeks ago, McCarthy was heading in this direction, but he still wanted to, you know, lay a little bit more groundwork, talk to the to his conference, uh, see if we could maybe push along some of the, you know, the, those uh, Republicans in districts who, that Biden won in the 2020 election to support an inquiry so he could get a, a House vote, uh, an actual, you know, vote on the floor to authorize this. And, um, you know, he, maybe he also saw the news that Matt Gates was going to jump up on the floor and, and talk about, uh, you know, trying to remove the speaker and wanted to get ahead of that uh, on, on Tuesday. It, it's unclear what changed in, in this, you know, time frame for McCarthy. But it, as you know, he sat there in the rotunda or stood there in the rotunda and sort of going through what's become sort of this familiar pattern of phrasings. It appears, you know, there's a lot of seams and appears and alleges, and there's actually no evidence. There's no, you know, we have these documents or we have this or we have that. Um, There's a lot of um, obfuscation because it seems like they're, they really just want to get to the inquiry to say, look, we have an inquiry and the president's not uh, cooperating. So there again is another, you know, reason to impeach. So it's, it's unclear exactly what they're going after. They, They obviously are getting what they want though, which is that the public, according to polling says, oh, there is something here. There is something going on. So maybe that's the ultimate goal isn't even to impeach the president. Uh, by the way, in addition to Phillip's columns in the Post, I thought Alexandra Petri yesterday uh, had a great column where she said she thinks the headline for this should be, we think there's a lot to impeach Joe Biden for, and we can't wait to find out what it is. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, Catherine, let's turn to the White House and their reaction. First of all, here is um, Ian Sp- Sams, who was on MSNBC, uh, pointing out that... Um, Not all Republicans are on board with this even. Quote, Dave Joyce, not seeing any facts or evidence. Don Bacon, quote, there should be a direct link to the president in some evidence. Dusty Johnson of South Dakota, I've not seen that evidence. So this is a widespread belief among the House Republican Conference. And the reason why it's a widespread belief is because it's the truth. Yeah. So, Catherine, it looks like the White House was, they knew this was coming and were prepared to hit back. What do you hear? They they knew that it was coming and they've been ramping up for a little while now, building out a war room and getting ready to defend their boss. I mean, it helps that at least 10 Republicans, as you just mentioned, are, are skeptical of this and that, you know, it might be given McCarthy's slim, uh, sl- narrow, very narrow majority in Congress that that whether he can afford these defections on, on a vote, uh, we, we don't know at this point. Um mm-hmm. For the White House, though, there is potentially an upside 
Uh, Clinton enjoyed very high approval ratings when he was impeached. <laughs> Up right. to Soul Boost, and and this is something that they are tracking, that they see, and that they that they're aware of. And so I think they're you know they're trying to make sure that they are um, rebutting things to the degree that that they need to, um, and they're well prepared to do that. But they also um, I don't think are losing too much sleep over it. So, Philip, the Republicans are, are quick to say, well, this is just an inquiry. This isn't an impeachment. Right. But isn't it clear once they, once they open right, this process, it's, it's, it's inevitable that they're going to end up impeaching Joe Biden? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a safe assumption. I mean, inevitable is probably a stronger word than I would use okay. in print. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. But, you know, simply simply to cover my bases. Yeah, I, I think that's likely. I mean, if you look at the way that this has evolved, right? So we have oversight and we have House Judiciary to a lesser extent uh, trying to cobble together this set of allegations, which Kevin McCarthy then presented when he was making his announcement on Tuesday. You know, he walked through these six things that he said uh, sort of warranted this, you know, most of which occurred before Joe Biden was president one of which was flatly false, several of which involved only Hunter Biden has no obvious ties to Joe Biden himself, right? But then when he's on TV a couple of weeks ago, he's saying, well, the reason we need this inquiry is because we think this thing happened, but we can't get the documents. So this will allow us to get the documents and then basically prove Joe Biden innocent. Well, anyone who's taken an introductory philosophy class understands that trying to prove a negative is, is a fool's <laughs> errand, right? You know, that, that by by saying, oh, we're just going to wait for Joe Biden to prove he's innocent, you're instantiating a process by which you're just going to continue investigating him forever because you can't prove you're innocent. There'll always be some document out there that, that Joe Biden's not turning over, which shows that he's culpable for crimes, right? So it is. Not only did Kevin McCarthy start this thing this week on very, very thin allegations, which uh, have been driven very forcefully by the right wing media and by people in his party, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, you know, according to Maggie Haberman uh, from Trump himself. But he also has established that the, the bar that needs to be met for this thing is an unattainable bar by itself. Those things combined mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea that this doesn't end in impeachment is, is sort of a, a, a long bet to take. Jason, didn't Donald Trump kind of let the cat out of the bag this week when he almost said outright, yeah, they impeached me, so we're impeaching him? Yeah, I mean, revenge, yeah, he, a case of revenge almost. Yes, it is. And it, and this is like very on brand for the former president, right? I mean, you know, he he does not believe in letting anything go unanswered, any sort of slight go unanswered, regardless of how long ago it was. Um and and in his interview with Megyn Kelly and Sirius XM, you know, he kind of came out and said, you know, well, they 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 got me twice. And, you know, now he's going to yeah. go after. <laughs> and, you know, again, the, the, the as far as the the look, uh, you know, for for House Republicans, I think that they're probably they don't see a lot of downsides to to see. To, you know, for the public, at least, or at least their voters seeing them talking to the president. I mean, Elise Stefanik, who's, who chairs the House Republican Conference, you know, uh, um, you know, she met with him or, or talked with him about this on the day that McCarthy announced the, the inquiry. Um, and, and again, I, I actually am not, I don't know if we actually get to a vote on the, on the House floor because, hmm. Hmm. Uh, you know, <laughs> on Wednesday, 
they couldn't even vote on a procedural rule to go to the defense appropriations bill. I mean, if one thing, if there's one thing that Congress likes to do, and particularly Republicans, it's fund the military, and they couldn't even get past a procedural rule on Wednesday. So, I, 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 I that's not to say that they won't impeach Biden, that they won't bring along people like Don Bacon and Dusty Johnson and Mike Lawler and all you know all these kind of vulnerable Republicans in New York and California who really provide their majority, but. I, I think that the chaos that we are seeing on the House floor is bigger than anything I've ever seen at any point in more than 20 years of covering Washington. Right. Uh, can, I just, can, can I just say something on that very quickly? Yeah, sure. I'm sorry to jump in, but I would no. say, and I, those are totally valid points. I would say, however, that I think this is a very unifying thing, right? This is something that all of them can get around. When we talk about someone like Mike Lawler, there's a lot of effort. And again, I, I can't understate the, the engine behind this in conservative media. And Mike Lawler, yes, he represents a, 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 you know Westchester County. It is not a hard right uh, part of the part of the country, but he is still someone who is going to depend upon a Republican base that is going to be very fired up about this. Yeah, no, no, t- t- totally get it. And and again, but I think that the the objective, the ultimate objective, is really just a bloody Biden, and and that that seems to be working. You know, even even uh, without impeaching. And Catherine. perhaps that point is Catherine, well, yes, yeah. The the White House, the White House is sort of at. You know, they came out this week. They asked they asked the media to to scrutinize. Uh, Republican claims that are being made and and to to, to strenuously push back on this. And so um, they're really taking a forceful position that that the media should be doing more to uh, hold Republican Republican claims to to account. No, I want to uh, exactly, Catherine, I want to ask you about that. I mean, what they're they're saying to the media, right, as I understand it, don't just report this stuff as as real, right? as fact without pointing out. Right, the 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 paucity, if total lack of evidence, is that what do you see? Is that message having an impact? I mean, I've heard various reporters take you know, uh, some of them thought it was just a boring fourteen pages that they put out there with no impact. Or are people taking it seriously? Well, I mean, it's not just the memo. Corinne Jean Pierre, the the press secretary, has also been more forceful in, in how she's speaking about it, calling it a baseless inquiry from the from the podium, um, and I'm really pressing reporters uh, to um, to to probe it a little bit further. Mm-hmm. And to push, is it too early, Philip, to um, assess the political impact of this? I mean, l- let's face it, right? It's all tied to. Uh, efforts to hold on to the House, to get rid Mm -hmm. of the weaken Joe Biden, to help Donald Trump, on and on and on. Uh, Is it, do you think it'll work? Yeah, I mean, it's it's impossible to talk about any of this, and particularly McCarthy's role without mentioning the fact that, you know, back in 2015, he pointed to the Benghazi hearings as weakening Hillary Clinton prior to 2016, right? You know, it was a huge gaffe in the moment. Uh, And it's 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 hard to separate this from that, certainly. Um, is it working? Yeah. I mean, it's working to an extent, just these conversations uh, that have already existed and the fact that this this happened mostly in the right wing sphere for a long time without a lot of people paying attention to it because, it was, you know, like superficially, there wasn't really anything there to report. 
Uh, but that really helped build up a head of steam. And now we see it in polling, right? So we saw there was polling from uh, CNN that came out a week or two ago. There's new polling from Fox News that just came out yesterday. And people still see Trump as more corrupt than Biden. But a lot of people see Biden as corrupt, including in this new Fox News poll, 10 percent of Democrats. Right. Uh, which is pretty remarkable. And it shows that despite the lack of evidence that he was involved in Hunter Biden's businesses, much less to an extent uh, that would be something that would be illegal or impeachable, uh, that this this narrative has already taken hold. I think those numbers will come down uh, once the, there is more attention being paid to this, once Joe Biden supporters start to take his, actually assess what's happening here. And quite frankly, once Biden allies start spinning up their, their, their rhetoric on this. Uh, and I, so I do think there will be some circling the wagons around him, but it's already had an effect. Right. So, uh, Jason, one other thing is uh, it was sort of believed that, okay, Kevin McCarthy would say either explicitly or implicitly, okay, I'll make a deal with you. I'll give you this impeachment baloney, right? But you've got to vote for my appropriations bills and that that would work, right? That didn't work out that way this week, did it? Absolutely not, and and it had two two big effects. So the first was, um, you know, the, the particularly the the members of the Freedom Caucus who have been this sort of you know thorn, not not even in his side, in basically all over his body uh, for the, for the entirety of of his time as, as Speaker. Uh, you know, Matt Gates went to the floor, you know, a little over an hour uh, after uh, McCarthy made his announcement and said. Uh, unless we get all 12 appropriations bills on the floor, you know, I will make a daily motion to vacate the chair. This is one of the deals that that McCarthy cut, you know, to, to become speaker is that they lowered the threshold for, you know, it just takes one person instead of five, uh, you know, to to, you know, basically move to vacate the chair, basically get rid of the speaker. So in in. I won't say normal times because I don't know when we've actually been normal, but, you know, in in, in you would expect that at, at a certain point, you know, somebody would emerge as an alternative uh, or Demo- and Democrats would, you know, sort of start to talk about a strategy. Maybe they, you know, you know, talk to McCarthy and say, like, OK, we'll we'll get your back on this. But. McCarthy also alienated the Democrats, so he didn't fool the, the Freedom Caucus <laughs> into supporting his his you know continuing resolution. You know, basically just a, a real stopgap plan, and while they get work out a you know whatever happens with the other appropriations bills for the for the coming year, um, he didn't fool them and didn't get their support. And then he immediately antagonized the Democrats by launching the impeachment inquiry. So he's he's you know he, he's sort of grasping for who to turn to. And it's just a mess. I mean, we really don't know, I mean, where where this is going to end up. I mean, there is some, you know, we, we've done some reporting that show that there are some um, different factions of the Republican conference are trying to come together on a plan that will get a short term continuing resolution until they can figure something out. Uh, but it's un- there it, it, right now. They don't know what exactly they're even going to be voting on next week. Right. So, so Catherine, uh, Jason mentions uh, Matt Gates from the floor. Uh, he certainly dominated there this week. Um, and here he is with one of the latest jabs against uh, Kevin McCarthy. I'm concerned for the speaker that he seems to be a little rattled and unhinged in a time when we need focus and strong effort. Uh, whether or not McCarthy faces a motion to vacate is within his own hands. All he has to do is come into compliance with the deal we made in January. So <laughs> what's the take? Does McCarthy keep his job, save his job? 
I think that there was perhaps some hope that McCarthy in pushing forward with the impeachment inquiry would be able to uh, stall or, or, you know, um, push back on some of these on some of these efforts by his rightist flank. Um, We're seeing that's obviously not the case. Um, You know, it's hard for him because there are just people in his conference who just do not like him. Um, There's nothing that he can do about that. And and they and they've said that they won't soften their demands for any spending cuts um, at all. As a result of the impeachment inquiry, they're saying there, you know, there's no connection, despite perhaps what what some people might may have hoped. Um, But but yeah, I don't know that uh, I don't know that it bodes particularly well for him. At the same time, who else? Do they have? He he's he's been better to them than than anybody else. Uh, they recognize that, and I I don't think it, he's in an enviable position. And I and I stretch to think who might be willing or or want to fill it. Uh, so Philip, I I end up being maybe the perpetual cynic on these shutdowns thing. How many times have we seen this play out? Right, right. we got two weeks to go, and everybody's saying we're right at the precipice. You know, we're going over the edge. We're going to shut down the government. And then in the 11th plus hour, they work out a deal, some have a deal to keep it going for another six months. And then we go through the whole scenario over again. So how seriously should we take this threat? Uh, It's a good question. And honestly, it's hard to answer, right? I mean, not only has that been the pattern for so long that, you know, we come up to the edge of this and then they kick it out for another two weeks and then, you know, maybe they reach a big deal and then maybe they don't. And, you know, one of the other things that we've seen recently is we've seen a lot of shutdowns, right? We've sort of become acclimated as well to this this worst case scenario in these that last, you know, however long. We obviously had an extremely long one when Donald Trump was president and he was trying to force uh, funding for the border wall. Uh, So it's really hard to say because I think not only are both sides used to this this last minute effort to, to reconcile the differences, but they're also by now just sort of used to going over the precipice and, and you know you know they, you know popping open their parachutes as they go right to extend a very weird metaphor. But um, <laughs> I, so so it's hard to say. You know I, I think that the idea in the past that shutdown was a disincentive, I think that has weakened. Uh, and so that makes it more likely that they go into shutdown on the plus side, I guess, if you're looking for a silver lining, we sort of know how to deal with these things. And I think probably government employees are, are used to it to some extent, not that it doesn't then, you know, incur any cost to them. Uh, but I, I think that it, there is a lower barrier to having it happen now, too. OK, well, um, if this were Fox News, we would have started with Hunter Biden, but here we are, <laughs> 21 minutes in, and we haven't even talked about Hunter Biden yet. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and pick up on that big issue and all the rest of the news of the week here with today's panel, uh, Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call, Catherine Doyle from NBC News, and Philip Bump from The Washington Post. Roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the great men and women of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the Teamsters Union, the largest and the most diverse of all of America's labor unions. Uh, They represent every aspect of the American workforce from vegetable workers in California, construct to construction workers in Vegas, brewery workers in St. Louis, and bakery workers in Maine, as they say. We represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. So we salute uh, the great members of the Teamsters Union and thank them for their longtime support of the Bill Press Pod, starting with President Jim Hoffa, 
many years ago. Uh, and check out their website to learn more about all of their many activities at teamster.org. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back on the Bill Press Pod uh, this Friday, September 15, with today's uh, guest on the roundtable, Catherine Doyle, joining us from NBC News, Philip Bump from the Washington Post, and Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call. Catherine, the first time uh, the president of the Justice Department has ever indicted a member of the president's family, the son of President Biden. Uh, indicted on three counts related to purchase of a gun in 2018. Uh, what are you hearing from the White House? Did they see this coming? And what's their reaction? They've known for a little while. I mean, they've typically been fairly reluctant to speak about Hunter's, the president's son's legal challenges and problems. And, um, you know, right now it, it's an issue that, um, is likely to consume the president, somebody who feels uh, very strongly uh, about the need to protect his son um, and who spends time with him and, and who, um, you know, it's his sole surviving son. It's his flesh and blood. And, and to see him indicted by, by his Justice Department, I think, is, is probably um, a, a, a very difficult experience. Um, at the same time, it's sort of uh, an inkblot test politically where, Allies of the president think or or believe that it shows that if the president's son can be indicted, um, that he the president has correctly uh, uh, enacted the firewalls that he promised to do after Trump mm -hmm. was in office. Um, from the other side, they view it as a uh, hunter escaping, perhaps evading more serious charges um, as as part of a as part of a sweetheart arrangement. Um, there are still more charges that could be coming. There are potential tax charges that Hunter Biden could face. And so uh, I would suspect that this is weighing pretty heavily on, on his family and, and those around him. There are a lot of questions about this indictment, Jason. Here is Abby Lowell, who has been um, Hunter, Hunter's, who is rather Hunter's attorney 
uh, on NBC, MSNBC explaining, uh, or it may have been CNN, I'm sorry if I got that wrong, um, explaining what he thinks some of the questions that uh, he intends to raise are. Hunter had a gun for 11 days. It was never loaded. It was never used. There has never been a standalone gun charge like this brought by this office ever. So then what changed? Not the facts, not the law, but we have seen over the last six weeks, the politics have certainly influenced the outcome. So Jason, he's indicating that the reason the Department of Justice did this, it did this is pure political pressure on David Weiss, the special counsel. Um, I mean, certainly there is pressure on him, but, you know, also we... This, the particulars of this case are so sort of weird and complicated, and we're seeing a side of, you know, courtroom kind of management and machinations that we rarely see. I mean, we, um, you know, plea deals like this. I, I mean, the, my reaction to it was, oh, you know, this this seems kind of slight. You know, like is this is this something that somebody would actually be charged with if they weren't in like a, a broader, you know, like a, a politically exposed person to use, you know, sort of a corporate term? Um, you know, th I think that Weiss, you know, was he, he seemed to have been sort of constrained by just looking at charges in Delaware because he was the U.S. attorney for Delaware. That changed, of course, when Merrick Garland made him the special counsel so he can look at things that are outside of the purview of just Delaware, such as, you know, whether he, you know, properly registered as a lobbyist say or th or things like that. So but but it does seem that in a in a country that is overflowing with guns and gun related crimes and so forth that this would be uh you know the uh something that somebody would be charged with seems a, a, like a bit of a stretch. Now again that it's probably not the end of Hunter Biden's uh difficulties uh, but certainly Lowell has a has a, a point to make, which is that when when, you know, members of Congress are openly sort of litigating your case in public, leaking transcripts of interviews with FBI agents and so forth, that that presents a problem about whether Hunter Biden could even get a fair trial. So I, I would guess that, you know, that that there is there are some basic questions of fairness that Lowell will continue to raise on behalf of, of uh, Abby his client. Abby Lowell has also made the point that there are several federal courts that have already uh, ruled that this law not uh, banning someone who uh, has a serious drug problem of owning a gun is unconstitutional. So there are questions about the constitutionality of, of the law under which he's charged. But Philip, regardless of the questions about the case, this is still a <laughs> this is bad news for Biden, right, politically. No, yeah, no. I mean, it, it's it's hard to see how it's particularly good news. Right? Yeah, right. You know, this isn't this isn't you know this isn't James Comer on House Oversight coming out and saying that that this happened. This is a U.S. attorney. This is a this is the special counsel appointed by the Justice Department, right? Um, so yeah, I I don't think it's good news. I do think it's probably uh, beneficial at least to the Biden administration that they can now say you know one of the six things that Kevin McCarthy said on Tuesday was that that basically that Hunter Biden is getting a soft touch because he was Joe Biden's son. This is clearly not that, uh, you know, there, there have already been some conspiracy theories like, oh, well, they're just trying to undermine it and yada, 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 because, you know, conspiracy theorists are going to conspiracy theorize. But um, I, I don't think that this is the sort of thing that Joe Biden wants to have coming into the next year's uh, election. I do think this will probably be resolved fairly quickly once it gets resolved. Uh, so it may not linger. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly does not aid him at a moment when he is trying to offset allegations that he is corrupt and 
having those allegations center on his relationship with his family. Okay. Uh, three other quick things I want to touch on before we uh, wrap up here today. Uh, Catherine, Joe Biden is probably the most union, I say this as a union member and a proud uh, union supporter all my life, Joe Biden's probably the most union-friendly president we've ever had. Um, and yet today, the United Auto Workers defying Joe Biden is on strike for the first time against all three major uh, top uh, U.S. automaker. What what role do we expect uh, Joe Biden to be playing and try to resolve this strike before it drags on and on? It's uh, I mean, it's a it's a it's a big deal for a president who who's who's made the claim that he's the most pro-union president in history. And, and he's expected to give remarks later today about this. And um, we should hear it. We should hear more more soon. Is he uh, talking to them? Do you know, is he involved or will he get involved? Um, I, it's, I, I imagine that he, I imagine that he is, uh, planning to play, uh, a stronger role, you know, to try and resolve this as quickly as possible. Uh, but we don't know yet whether he's been on the phone to, uh, the president of the auto workers or the auto manufacturers. Of course, it just started overnight. Jason, on another front, I can tell you that even in California, uh, California Democrats were surprised when Nancy Pelosi... Um, they were surprised, first of all, when she stayed on as a member after she was no longer the speaker. But now she's going for another term. It seems this is sort of a poke in the eye of Donald Trump, one of the reasons she's staying around. What's the re- what, what do you hear? Uh, I, I, too, was surprised, Bill. Uh, you know, I, when we st- saw that the, the former speaker was going to have a, a public event last week in San Francisco, we sort of went into high alert saying, like, all right, this is it. She's going to retire and yeah. <laughs> you know, pa- pave the way for, you know, maybe like her daughter or somebody else to run for that seat, uh, give plenty of uh, time and, uh, you know spend time with the grandkids or, you know, <laughs> ask, you know, uh, ask for an ambassadorship, like, <laughs> like powerful people do. Uh, and then, yes, she, she decided to run. I mean, whether it's a, uh, whether it's aimed at Donald Trump or aimed at political reporters, I'm not sure. She seems to have an ax to grind with, uh, with both, uh, of, of us. I mean, she, uh, has, has, you know, very noticeably, you know, gotten, more defensive about, you know, when questions come up, particularly about her, you know, colleague, Diane Feinstein, who's 90 mm-hmm. uh, and has been in, in uh, you know, very uh, shaky health for the for a few years and and particularly this year. Um, so, you know, she she is 83 years old. I mean, she's older than the president. She's older than Mitch McConnell. Um, she does seem pretty like capable, you know, of the job. There, there are no questions really about whether she would be able to do the job. I think it just comes down to, you know, what is the role here? And so far, you know, she has been a positive, you know, she still raises a lot of money. She's sort of a backstop in the, in the house democratic, you know, caucus. So it's not that there are a lot of downsides unless of course you're, uh, an ambitious San Francisco area Democrat who would like to run for office at some point uh, beyond the city council. You're going to have to wait another two years, right? <laughs> exactly. No, and there's no doubt that uh, she will be reelected easily, uh, and all the money she raises and, all, and a lot of her energy will go into helping other Democrats in order to take back the House in 2024. I think that's her uh, prim- primary goal. Well, another political announcement, Philip, 
with Mitt Romney making just the opposite decision. Yeah. He is not going to run for re-election. And he went out basically with guns ablazing uh, about um, members of his own party. Here is uh, Mitt Romney. Well, there's no question, but that the Republican Party today is, is in the shadow of Donald Trump. Uh, he is the leader of the greatest portion of the Republican Party. Uh, it's a populist, I believe, demagogue portion of the party. My wing of the party talks about policy and about issues that will make a difference to the lives of the American people. The uh, Trump wing of the party uh, talks about resentments of various kind and getting even and, and settling scores and, and revisiting the 2020 election. Yeah, Philip, um, I guess that we have to accept, or maybe Mitt Romney did, there's just no place for a Republican like him in the Republican Party anymore. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's been remarkable about his recent career is that Utah was in 2016 and then for years afterward, sort of this bastion of traditional republicanism. It was much more skeptical of Donald Trump than were other states. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it had, for example, Evan McMullen was this 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 prominent yeah. voice there mm -hmm. and who actually, you know, uh, ran a, a fairly robust, not great, but fairly robust uh, campaign yeah. predicated Good. on the sort of anti-Trumpism. Right. Um, but it didn't work. And Mitt Romney discovered that, you know, even though he felt as though he had allies when he was behind closed doors in the Senate, they weren't willing to actually step out. At times, uh, you know, according to the great piece in The Atlantic from McKay Coppins, uh, there, it was just driven by fear uh, that his, you know, Republicans who were otherwise allied with Romney's sort of worldview and the traditional Republican worldview, they were too, just they didn't see value in stepping forward because they would become targets. Uh, and at times it was just simply trying to appeal to the masses, not because of fear, but because that's where the, the, the political uh, benefits lay. Uh, and obviously that's true, right? You know, the, the most remarkable aspect of all of this, of course, is that Mitt Romney is not only sort of you know, this is not as though there was a primary contest between Trump and Romney and Trump won 55-45. This is that Mitt Romney is now a pariah, that he who 11 years ago was the party nominee for the presidency is now an outcast and, and is, is, yeah. is hated by his party because he dares to say these things. And so, yeah, I think that everything he just said there is obviously accurate. Uh, and he's he, he is very wisely, he's always been pretty smart about politics, uh, he's very wisely using this moment of attention to draw attention to these things once again, as he tried to do in 2016, when he had that great speech in which he went very hard after Donald Trump uh, and, you know, saw no effect from it. Uh, so I think there probably won't be much effect from this, but he, he at least had a chance to say his piece. Right. Uh, and he also went out saying it's time for a new generation of leaders, right, <laughs> calling on both Donald Trump and Joe Biden to get out of the way and, and, to, uh, and to let that happen. So um, Mitt Romney, I'm sure we're going to be hearing more of him before he uh, actually exits the stage, stage in, 20, uh, the, uh, in 2024. Uh, well, great look at the week. I hope he didn't leave too many things off the table. Got to just about as much as we could. Uh, and we thank you to uh, Catherine Doyle and Philip Bump, Jason Dick. But before you go, uh, always love to hear what's the one story that caught your attention, particularly this week, made you stop in your tracks and think about it or weep about it or laugh about it. Our favorite story of the week. Jason, start us off, please. 
Okay, I'm glad that I got to go because I was afraid somebody else would take this uh, story. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, and granted, there were a lot of really good stories. Um, you know, Ben Terrace's story about Tim Scott and whether his girlfriend about oh, his girlfriend yeah. was a great one. That was a big contender for me. But I, I have to go with the dog chasing rats uh, in a uh, story in, in the Washington Post style section by Mara Jukas. Uh, this is a it's a really good story, and it's actually fairly. It starts out sort of sensationalist about this group of of people who have um, dogs, you know, <laughs> pr- primarily terriers, uh, who are trained to go after rats, and they're they're kind of patrolling uh, parts of DC, you know, that are rat heavy. Like uh, you know, in Georgetown, you can you can tell from reading between the lines that these are areas around like cafe Milano uh, and, uh, and Adams Morgan. And it's this great, you know, story of, of her, you know, going along. And, and hmm. also the photography is amazing uh, of, of what happens. It's disturbing, but it's also amazing. Uh, and then it, it also gets into, you know, why we have such a rat problem in, in DC, you know, it's not just the pandemic. Uh, and also some of the questions about the, you know, whether, you know, how you abate rats, you know, is it, is it more humane to trap them and poison them, uh, like DC rodent control or to let dogs loose on them? Uh, it's not, uh, technically legal to hunt rats, uh, in the, in the district of Columbia, but like their people are obviously turning a, uh, a blind eye to this in, in, in law enforcement. It's a, it's a really complicated story. That's also just well-reported and well-observed and, uh, my, my hat's off to it. It's, it's not, it's a, it's a good, good story. Uh, two quick comments. One, you have to add Capitol Hill to <laughs> to areas of the city that's, that have rat a, central. <laughs> have a rat population. Uh, number one. Number two. Also, I'd add to that. That was a great article. But also, recently, the New Yorker did an archival issue a couple of weeks ago, and it included an article by the great Joseph Mitchell about oh. the rat population in New York City. <laughs> and the article's about 20 years old. It is scary as hell. And the only thing is, the situation is probably worse today than it was 20 years ago. All right. Uh, Philip Bump, what caught your attention this week? Uh, the, the story that there's a lot of good stories out there this week, but but uh, along the sort of more lighthearted lines of the rat story, <laughs> at least for someone who doesn't doesn't live in D.C. doesn't have to deal with them. Uh, there was this great story in Curbed that had come across this apartment that was being sold in Williamsburg, New York City. Uh, and the photos, you know, how you take pictures of the, of the place you're trying to sell. So the photos included a number of acting awards. And so they're like, well, who on earth is trying to sell an apartment that has all of these awards? And they, they point out that, you know, in New York City, it's pretty common to have Emmys because a lot of people who work on, you know, TV yeah. shows, you know, there's a lot of Emmys that are given out. But there are some like, you know, Screen Actor Guild awards and, and some some more higher profile awards, not the disparage Emmy nominees. But anyway, so they dug into the photos and they picked out little clues, like little initials above children's beds and all these things and figured out it was the the actor Jeremy Strong from Succession. Uh, and it was just this really great article uh, that was just using these clues in, in, a, in a just, you know, a standard, you know, for sale uh, picture set to, to identify that it was this this actor. And they, you know, uh, oh, it must be his kids because, look, it matches. And, you know, must he, he must be he's married apparently to a Danish woman. So there are these Danish words that they were able to pick out. It's just this really great piece. Uh, uh, Lydia Polgreen described it as, you know, uh, low stakes investigative journalism. And that's exactly what it is. It was a lot of fun and, and worth checking out. Good detective work, right? Indeed. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, indeed. Uh, yes. And uh, Catherine, uh, with all your busy days at the White House, anything particular uh, capture your attention? 
Uh, well, I too enjoyed the Ben Terrace deep dive into Tim Scott's love life and his mystery girlfriend, which has invited plenty of jokes of uh, girlfriends that go to other schools and, and, and similar, along similar lines. But but what I wanted to bring up was the uh, sort of an internet deep cut on Mitt Romney's online persona, Pierre Delecta, which Trump invoked in a social media post this week, gleefully bidding goodbye to the senator uh, sometime in the future. Um, so you'll probably remember that uh, the, the account was unearthed back in 2019 when uh, a reporter found that, you know, he had, he was following just his children on the internet and, and surreptitiously liking posts about Romney and sometimes replying to them and defending him. I wouldn't exactly call him a reply guy, but there was, there were efforts to, you know, to, to protect his reputation a little bit on the internet. Um, and then he eventually, Romney confessed confessed that this was his that this was his anonymous account that he used uh, <laughs> to survey to survey the online landscape on, on Twitter um, and to to chime in where necessary. So I thought so that was sort of a fun one. And well, you know, Donald Trump is not going to let anything like that go uh, unmentioned, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, um, I I like. Uh, Jason was worried that somebody might capture, take my favorite story of the week, and I'm glad none of you did, because my favorite story of the week is I read this account, I saw this headline, that Congresswoman Lauren Boebert was escorted <laughs> out of a performance of Beetlejuice because of a disturbance in this theater out in Colorado. And at first I thought, oh, no, that's too bad. I mean, she's a member of Congress. People ought to leave her alone. I figured it was because people were harassing her that they had to escort her out of the theater. But then I read into it, no, no, no. The person who was causing all the disturbance was her. <laughs> and she was at this, um, this performance. The management got three complaints about her being so loud, so obnoxious, uh, disrupting the performance, taking cell phone videos of it, which is banned in the theater, and vaping during the performance. They got three complaints before intermission, and they said something to her. Uh, after intermission, they got another complaint. So they came up and said, you're out of here, lady. And she said, do you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? And they said, we don't care. I'm, of course, uh, just reflecting not word for word, uh, quoting them. But they basically said, we don't care who you are. You come out with us or we're going to call the, the, the Denver police uh, to come and escort you out. At which point she willingly got up and left with them. Uh, I just thought it was a funny story. And whatever it says, I don't know, um, there's some message there about the level of maturity of the people who are running the United States Congress today, because she is one of the Freedom Caucus, and we know that's the Freedom Caucus, and not Kevin McCarthy, who's running the show. Uh, with that, okay, Lauren, behave yourself in public, anyhow. Uh, by the way, uh, the, the stories I saw, um, unless some of you may know may know the truth is nobody mentioned whether alcohol was involved uh and we also don't know whether lauren bobert was packing uh at the time which uh <laughs> which she's known for doing so there you go and with that that's a wrap for today a great big thank you to Catherine doyle joining us again from nbc news philip bump from the washington post and jason dick from our cq roll call thank you panelists and thank you all friends for joining us today. 
And now go off and have a great weekend, but don't go too far away because we'll be back with the next edition of the Bill Press Pod on Tuesday, I'm talking to Franklin Four, who's out with a brand new book, the very first book on the first two years of the Joe Biden administration, a book called The Last Politician, which I've been digging into. It's a really good read. I think he's got a great take on the highs and the lows of the first two years of the Biden administration. Franklin for joining us on Tuesday. Again, have a great weekend, folks. We'll see you on Tuesday in the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.